This podcast you're about to listen to is a controlled experiment using trained intellectual monkeys. Remember that these are the opinions of real monkeys and may not reflect the opinions of the highly trained human scientists in charge. And most importantly, no monkeys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Hey, uh, Teo. What's up? Remember how I said last time in this interview I should actually write down how I actually introduce um, our guests on this uh, podcast? Mm -hmm. And I said it's like the last like several times we've done this. Mm -hmm. You know what I didn't do? Uh, write down the introduction for the podcast. A hundred percent. So we're just gonna <laughs> we're just gonna do it live because we're a hundred percent a professional podcast. And Grace, you're you're used to my shenanigans, so we're just gonna go with it. here again with uh, Teo and Grace. Before we get into, you know, talking about um, whatever shenanigans we get into, why don't you just quickly introduce yourself to everyone, um, describe what you do and uh, why you're awesome and uh, why you're important and why you're on this uh, beautiful blue planet of ours. Okay, uh, my name is Grace Bear. I am a whale biologist or a whale researcher with BC Whales, which is a not-for-profit whale research organization focused primarily on the north coast of British Columbia. And Grace, you've 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 dabbled a fair share in uh, my life here and there. And um, I always have these traditions in my interviews. I've been interviewing people for uh, probably, oh gosh, probably over a decade at this point. So I'm going to give you one of my classic icebreaking questions. It's the most important question of any interview. And I'm so stoked to finally be able to ask you this question after 10 years. Grace, if you could, please, describe what you do in sounds only, also known as an automatopoeia. What sound represents your job and why? I'm going to go with whoosh. And the reason for that is it sounds like a whale taking a breath. And that's the calmest moments to be doing what we do and the most exciting because you know something might happen once you hear that sound. A, a whale actually, you can hear a whale's breath? Absolutely, yeah. We call it a blow, and it goes as soon as they come up to the surface. And you can see it, and you can hear it. It's your first cue that something could be happening. So right, right off the bat, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of be a bit aggressive here in my interviewing. Is the automatopoeia whoosh, or is it? I guess whoosh, because you have to be able to write it, don't you, for it to be an automatopoeia? I, I don't know. I failed English. I just yeah. assume my well, I got a D, so <laughs> I just assume my guests know what these <laughs> Okay, so you're a you're a you work for BC Whales. You're a whale researcher. Uh, would that would that make you an aquatic biologist, or use like specifically a whale researcher? What is your field? Yeah, that's a great question, and I've struggled to answer that uh, a lot. I would say that either or is accurate. Um, my degree is not in aquatic biology or marine biology. It's in biological sciences. But in the work that I do, I've quite specialized in researching whales and uh, analyzing 
them. So I feel more comfortable saying a whale researcher as opposed to say a marine biologist. So, so, so does that mean that like you like specialize in um, whales as opposed to like other types of marine uh, yeah, life? Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah, cool. I have some experience as a naturalist um, operating ecotourism tours throughout the Salish Sea. Um, and so through that, I've had experience with loads of marine mammals and other aquatic life. But the work that we're doing is really focused on cetaceans and uh, within cetaceans, whales and the great whales, especially humpback whales and fin whales are the two species that we're primarily focused on on the North Coast. So what what do you do? I guess that's probably where we should start on this. You, you research whales. What does that mean? Right. So a lot of what we do is spending about half of the year at a really remote field station on the North Coast on Finn Island. Uh, if you're trying to find it on a map, if you can find Haida Gwaii and go straight across towards the mainland, it's a really little island. It looks a little bit like a dog or a lady or a ghost. I've heard all three descriptions of that island, and that's where we're located. Uh, there's no town near us. The closest community is the Gitgat First Nation community of Hartley Bay. Um, but other than that, our closest access to town is three hours to Kitimat by boat or four hours to Prince Rupert by boat. So we're quite remote in what we do, um, but it's incredible whale habitat. There's loads of whales that use the area. And so we're quite fortunate to be able to do a lot of what we do from the station itself, as well as from marine surveys that we conduct. So I, I guess we would make a, a, a good segue there. Um, is you're, you're, you're located in a remote area. What does that mean? Like, what does that mean for your day to day? What does your day to day look like in your job? So primarily what we're doing every day is we're listening to hydrophones. There's an array of hydrophones within our immediate area that we have eyes on. So we can pair what we're seeing visually with whales or other marine mammals or vessels at the surface with what we're hearing acoustically 24 hours a day. Those hydrophones are also recording throughout the year. So in instances where we're not able to be at the station, if the weather turns bad and we need to leave for our own safety or throughout the winter when nobody's up there, those hydrophones are constantly recording. So part of what we're doing on the day-to-day -day is monitoring those hydrophones, marking down any interesting acoustic activity, as well as we're doing visual surveys. So from land, every hour on the hour, we're conducting a 20-minute scan of every marine mammal, um, including whales, vessels, or other interesting activities that are happening within our visual line of sight of the area. So that takes up a good chunk of our day in the field. Um, in an ideal scenario, in non-COVID years, we have a few people up there. Usually about five people is an ideal number to have at the station. And so when you have that amount of people, you can split up your tasks. So you have some people that are at the station throughout the day and some people that are maybe going out on a marine survey and looking through farther reaches of Gitget territory or throughout the Great Bear Rainforest for whale presence and noting what they're doing. Cool. What sort of sounds, um, I guess they're called hydrophones, uh, what sort of sounds do you pick up there? I imagine there's more going on than, than whales. Uh, what sort of things do you pick up? Yeah, absolutely. So we're really unique in where we're located and that there's not a lot of vessel traffic. So there's uh -huh. very little um, anthropogenic noise or human-made noise interfering with the soundscape. So a lot of what we're listening to is just the ambient noise of the ocean. And so that can include wave noise. We can hear rain if it's raining really hard. We can hear vessels if they are going past. Um, whales make quite a few vocalizations and we can actually track where they are based on what hydrophone we're hearing them on. Um, fish will make grunts. 
uh, urchins, <laughs> you can hear them if they're crawling around on the hydrophones. There's just loads of incredible sounds <laughs> that are happening beneath the ocean that we're not normally even aware of. Wow, uh, this seems like you, you're you, uh, specially placed so that you can really hear the whales. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the way that our hydrophones are actually positioned, they're within a square or a diamond uh, within Squally Channel. And so there's actually a software that was developed through a collaboration with the GitGat and WWS. And so that actually allows us to localize the position of whales that are vocal based on the time delay it takes to hit each hydrophone. That's cool. <laughs> this is this is kind of just my own my own curiosity. I have an actual important question after this, but have you got does it sound cool? Like have you listened to it? <laughs> like is it therapeutic? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I <laughs> I miss hearing hydrophones when I'm at home. There's a few organizations that actually broadcast live. So you can listen to the ocean oh, cool. live whenever you want. Um, Orca Lab is a great one. And so if I'm at home and I'm not in the field, I almost always have a hydrophone on in the background to just feel connected to the ocean. Oh, that's beautiful. Because I was trying to think, I was like, you know, if you sell, if, if BC Whale starts selling these recordings, I'm pretty sure people are going to take them. Like, this is like some ASMR, like next level thing. You can get a lot of ad money on this. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure about that. This is opportunity. But, um, <laughs> yeah, but there is a new collaboration uh, and project that BC Wells is working on in tandem with other NGOs and First Nations communities with the GIGAT and also outside of the GIGAT um, to develop a coast-wide network of hydrophones. So we actually have hydrophones on the north coast where we are, in the central coast in Clem 2 and Bella Bella, uh, in the southern coast near Orca Lab or Hanson Islands, northeast Vancouver Island, and as well on Saturna Island in the Salish Sea. So we're actually collaborating on a coastwide hydrophone network. And hopefully this year, we're going to be developing a website where people can access that um, and develop their own connection to the ocean or listen to it for whatever purposes they may be interested in. That's really cool. I, I noticed on uh, BC Wales website, I was just sort of looking through it and I noticed that you guys are also um, uh, drones. And I was, I'm just wondering, like, is, is that like a totally separate project, or do do the does the do the hydrophone does the hydrophone data uh, link with the uh, drone data? You know, <laughs> like. Do, yeah, that's a that's a great question, and uh, the answer is yes. There are a few projects now that uh, are using drones. One of them is the one that's detailed on the website, which is collecting genetic samples from the whale blow or breath. Um, oh, cool. So it's actually a non-invasive way to collect cells that have enough DNA that you can sequence them. Um, and so a master's student named Adine Omani actually picked that up in 2019 when the drone project started um, and has since developed that further into being able to collect eDNA samples through water collection. And she's expanded that into a PhD. So there's that happening with drones. Um, another project that we've started expanding on is analyzing threats to whales through looking um, from an aerial perspective. So a project that I'm working on actually is looking through drone footage, pulling still images of whales and analyzing them for any scars that have originated from either a ship strike or entanglement event. So there's right. that happening with drones as well, but the pairing, what we're seeing through a drone with the hydrophones is something that's happening through SWAG, uh, a project that is, uh, yeah, a project called SWAG. Its full name is Ships, Whales, and Acoustics in Git Territory. 
And um, so that's a master's student named Shinoa is taking that on right now in collaboration with the other people working for SWAG. And uh, so she is pairing drone focal follows. Uh, so where you're following a whale from above and monitoring their movements and tracking them with a GPS that's in the drone and pairing them with if we're hearing anything acoustically and if it's being localized to that area. So to see how often a whale is vocal and if our acoustic software that's localizing them is localizing them accurately. Oh, right. That's cool. So yeah. Test accuracy. That's neat. I I, I was really uh, surprised by by the like ge genetic sampling thing <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. So it, how, how how do you get genetic samples from a drone? Like, does the drone like collect it from the uh, uh, oh. from the blow? From the blow, there we go. Yeah, or, exactly. Oh, wow, that's, that's exactly amazing. what happens. So <laughs> petri dishes are mounted to the drone, and um, with a really specialized research license, you can actually fly through the blow from a whale, and there's enough snot or skin cells within the blow that you can actually sequence them. And that's uh, so cool. Yeah. I have so many questions. I have so many. Okay, first, how does the bl like a drone's electricity? How like isn't blow like ninety percent water? Like how does it not take out the drone? And then secondly, yeah. why do you need a research license to fly through water that's flying? Yeah, snot that's flying through the sky. Right. <laughs> so the blow itself. Uh, can definitely be a danger to the drone. And most drones that do this kind of work are nicknamed snotbots um, because you're flying through snot trying to get as much data as you can. Um, the reason that you need a research license is because it's illegal to fly with a drone over any marine mammal oh, in Canada. Right. So you need to have a specialized research license to fly over them for any reason. Um, and especially if you're getting as close enough to be able to fly through them for collecting a blow sample. That's good. <laughs> Yeah. Third question: <laughs> Do you guys also happen to mount a camera to the to the snot drones so that you can see the snot fly out? Yeah, I mean, drones tend to come with cameras <laughs> attached to them, and ours are no exception. So uh, there's some pretty incredible footage of flying through snot. This is this is this is amazing. This is not what I expected. Okay, so. <laughs> So with all this, you 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 BC whales they record sounds. We we kind of understand why they're collecting collecting snot and what. But what's the what's the ultimate goal of all this? Like why does when you're listening for interesting activities through these hydrophones, when you're collecting snot, when you're trying to look at um I, with these drones, and you're trying to I guess look at if there's like predators around or some sort of thing that damages these whales. What's the ultimate goal of all this? The ultimate goal is to collect data to inform conservation to protect these whales. The whales that were focused on, primarily humpbacks and fin whales, were targeted very heavily by commercial whaling and are still recovering back to their prehistoric levels. So the data that we're collecting, the reason for it is we want to understand as much as we can about why they're using this habitat, why is this habitat important to them, so that we can protect it for them. Um, and the reason to include hydrophones in that is because what we're seeing at the surface is only giving us half of the story. We're only seeing a small fraction of what's actually going on throughout these whales' lives, and only a small fraction of the year when they're actually up here with us in 
uh, cold waters during their migration to their feeding grounds. So we want to understand as much about that as possible so that if there's a threat to them, we can inform conservation management to the best of our abilities. There's probably, like, as a conservationist, there's probably a lot of stuff you can't talk about that, that would just make sense to me. But can you say what you what you understand about whales? Like in terms of like, do they go on vacation down in the south? Is there any particular reason why they like a certain area? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know that this is an absolute, but from what I've noticed from being up there, especially where we are on Finn Island, there's very, very min- like minuscule amounts of vessel traffic, and it's a very productive feeding habitat. It's deep water. It's a fjordic system. So there's loads of nutrients being cycled through the water, and it makes cool. it very productive and feeds the food that will feed whales. Uh, so that's a key reason why they're doing very well in that habitat. And another key reason is that vessel mm-hmm. traffic is quite minimal for now. Um, in the next few years, there is a proposed new LNG or liquid natural gas tanker route that will actually be going right past where we are and all the way up into Kitimat. So part of the reason as well that we're collecting all this data now and we have been uh, for the organization for the last 20 years is to have a baseline of what's happening now before these tankers come through so that we can monitor if there's any changes once they start coming through that area. Right. Uh, I'm wondering, do, do like, uh, a little bit of shame to admit, but I really don't know anything about whales, but I, I, I assume that they that they get around a lot. <laughs> they don't just stay in one place. So, um, how... F- you know, if, how, how far do whales tend to like travel throughout the year or uh, their lifetime? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't have an exact number for you, but for humpback whales, they're an incredibly migratory species. There's actually only one population of humpbacks in the world that doesn't migrate, and that's in the oh. Arabian Sea. So the humpbacks that we see on the north coast of British Columbia, they're coming to the north coast, usually arriving slowly in May and staying until November or the end of October. And so during that time, they're up there to feed. And so when they leave that feeding area, they're traveling to warm tropical waters. For us, the whales that we see are traveling primarily to Hawaii and Mexico to have their calves and to breed. And so when they're down in those breeding grounds, there's very little food for them. They're not feeding really throughout their migration, as far as we understand. So they're constantly completing the cycle of traveling to their breeding grounds, traveling back to their feeding grounds. Um, and so that can be different for each population for how far that journey is, but it's um, it's a long one for them. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, cool. So um, are, are you in like, are you like other um, researchers all along that migratory route to like follow the whales? We We aren't currently collaborating with any organizations outside of um, British Columbia, uh, but we have recently started collaborating with, I'm not sure if they're an organization, but they're called Happy Whale. And so what they do is they track individual IDs. Uh, We can ID whales based on unique characteristics or patterns of pigmentation on their bodies. And so if we upload it to Happy Whale or citizen scientists upload their sightings Uh to Happy Whale, 
then we can track where these whales are going. So for example, there's a whale that we've seen for the last 17 years uh, named Jupiter and where we call where we see him and uh, it's just been sighted in Hawaii. So we now know that uh, okay. this whale that we see up here travels to Hawaii during during that migration. Oh, that's cool. So there's a citizen science uh, sort of place to track these whales. Yeah. That's neat. Anybody <laughs> that's seen whales in the wild or has a picture of an identifying feature can submit to Happy Whale and uh, and it gets included into a huge citizen scientist database. And more recently, uh, NGOs have also been participating and submitting their sightings to this database as well. Oh, nice. Cool. So, uh, so, so just to make sure my head understood, the the benefit of that is it kind of like lets you use people out in the world help you track whales for behavioral research purposes is that is that the idea of it yeah that's that's definitely part of it i don't know how much of it is going to help us understand behavior but it can help us understand their movements uh, so we can understand that a whale that we've seen on the north coast is now also being sighted in hawaii so we know that that whale, if it forms a group, a feeding group, let's say in the North Coast, it would be interesting to look at if members of that feeding group also travel to Hawaii, or if there's a mix between what breeding grounds they go to and how that impacts um, something behaviorally. That's still a question to be asked. One one thing I was curious is I I, I had a, I had an opportunity to go on a whale watching tour, and they were talking about this uh, ability to I think it was identifying most whales with i think it's their fin shape have you first question have you done that have you been put on the task of being the whale identifier yes that is how any whale researcher starts uh you start by iding whales that nobody else was able to id <laughs> second question how hard is that because they all look the same to me how long did that <laughs> take you, you to learn <laughs> It's it's uh, it took a while. The first year that I worked as a naturalist at a whale watching company, that is the task I struggled with the most. But it's just it comes down to practice. And once you know whales, if you can ID one whale within a group, then you can sometimes figure out who the rest of the whales are. And that's particularly true for orca. Um, so that's probably what they were talking about. IDing orca based on their dorsal fins or the gray area behind it called the saddle patch. And so scarring within that gray area can be unique to each whale, as well as any nicks that are along the dorsal fin. So often, like if I'm on the water and I see a whale with a pretty a tall but slightly curved dorsal at the top with a nick about a quarter of the way down, I'm thinking immediately, oh, these are the T65As or the transient 65A matriline. So there's once you've done it a, a fair bit, you start to recognize whales that you know. Um, cool. And then you can sort of pinpoint who the rest of them are based on who one of them is. But that's less true for humpbacks. That, that's really cool that you're like, you can ID whales like in, yeah, like not just like species level me. or subspecies or something like this. Yeah, yeah, that's what drew me to, to whale research initially. I was actually um, just on a trip to Zimbabwe and there was a researcher that I I was able to spend some time with who was IDing lions individually. Huh. And I, it just blew my mind. I couldn't imagine how much you would be able to learn from an individual's behavior and expand that to what that might mean for their family or for their population. Right. And so then once I was sort of diving back into this world of whales and marine biology, and I discovered you could do that, 
then I was hooked. Then I thought, okay, well, this is for me. That's really cool. It seems like you can get a really intimate sense of the uh, of the populations that you're studying that way. Uh, I'm wondering, do, do you have a sense for like individuals that you're working with? Like, is it on the order of hundreds or? Yeah. So humpback whales that we see so, on the north coast, we're estimating there's about 500. Um, last year, we had a shortened field season because of COVID and also because there were some really big storms that were going through our area. So we had to actually close the station a month earlier than we'd planned to. Hmm. Um, but in that shortened season, we were able to identify 104 humpback whales individually and hmm. a few new arrivals that we've never seen before as well. So um, it's definitely possible. Yeah. There's been years where 200 whales have been identified individually. <laughs> and then you can sort of take a look at how often you saw one whale more than once compared to how often you saw each whale to get a better sense for how many there might be in the total population. Oh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there, there, there's one question that, um, I'm going to get to, but it's a little bit, it's a little bit serious. Um, and so before I get onto that, um, I'm going to ask you one question that might make you uh, want to fight me. Um, and that question is, Grace, which is your favorite whale? <laughs> oh my gosh. I think it changes from year to year. It's normally a whale that I've had some experience with. Um, I Right now, I might say there's a humpback whale on the North Coast named Adidas. And Adidas is a whale that I've seen every year that I've gone up there. And last year, it was a really rainy day, really stormy, big waves. We weren't expecting to see whales because we had maybe 200 meters of visibility in front of the cabin. And then all of a sudden we were on the deck, just working on something, maybe tying something down for a storm that was coming. And we heard that whoosh, we heard that blow and maybe 10 meters from shore, maybe less was Adidas. And we believe that Adidas is a male, but we don't actually know for sure. But he was rolling around in these waves and <laughs> literally almost could smack the rocks right under where we were standing. And that, I think, is something that will just stay with me, being able to have that kind of experience with a whale, knowing you're not interfering and just standing on the rocks um, is something that I won't forget. And it's a reason that Adidas will always, I think, stay with me. <laughs> And just out of curiosity, who gets to name these whales? Like, if you see a whale for the first time, do you get to name it? Occasionally, yeah. It's usually the researchers that are out seeing these whales that get to name them. Occasionally, the public will get to name them if we're not sure on something to name it, but we know a whale needs a name. But the names usually come from some identifying feature, and they help us to identify a whale. So Adidas has a scientific name. Uh, which is a BCY and then a string of numbers, but it's much easier to remember Adidas. And the reason for that name is there's three marks on uh, on his left fluke that looks like the Adidas logo. <laughs> so we're just trying to look for like Nike and Reebok. There's actually a whale named Nike. <laughs> yeah, in the Sailor Sea. Yeah, there's a whale named Nike and I spent a lot of time with him as well. <laughs> um, uh, you, you mentioned that, you, that you're... That you did like a general biology uh, degree, if, if, that, if I remember correctly, and and so so it sounds like maybe you didn't start super into whales or something. So I'm I'm wondering like what what brought you to into the whale fold? Um, when I was really young, and I mean really young, like a baby, less than one years old, <laughs> my family had a had a trailer 
at Saratoga Beach on Vancouver Island. And I actually learned to walk there. So I fell in love with the ocean before uh-huh. I could talk, before I could walk. And when I was nine, I went on my first whale watching tour with my grandpa. And so just seeing whales in the wild just really did something for me. And it's something that I've never been able to shake. I've tried oh, cool. to go in different paths, but it's always drawn me back in. I need to be near the ocean for whatever reason. I almost dropped out of my degree. I was going to leave it and uh, pursue veterinary medicine um, to be a vet tech, not an actual vet. <laughs> I don't think I could do that, but I was very close to dropping out. And thankfully an advisor told me, what the heck do you think you're doing? You need to finish this degree. And uh, it was around that time that the animal hospital I worked at was actually undergoing construction. And so my hours got cut and I needed a new job. So that's when I actually found a job working as a naturalist for a whale watching company. And as soon as I was back on the water with whales in the wild, then that was it. Then I started reaching out to organizations and I reached out to BC Whales and the rest is a kind of history. Oh, that's that's wonderful. So you're able to connect back to your um, early passion for whales. That's that's really nice. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) How often does your family play that Moana song about being drawn to the ocean? Not as often as they play Amazing Grace. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. I respect that. So what? So so is there anything in particular that um, draws you to the ocean? Is it is it soothing for you? Is it therapeutic? Is it just I don't know? You remember the one year old, the waves crashing, and you're just like, waves are amazing. I think it's probably a combination of of all of those things. I think that when I am near the ocean and especially in a remote place, it just does something to me. I just feel like myself. I just feel connected in some way. And I felt that the first time I went to Finn Island, like I've never felt it anywhere else. Just being that far removed from a traditional or a Western civilization just allows you to connect to nature and to the ocean in a way that I don't think you can accomplished somewhere else or I couldn't personally um so being near the ocean just hearing the sounds of the waves listening to the underwater sounds from the hydrophones it just puts things in perspective I guess and it's definitely therapeutic in a lot of ways so 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 one thing one thing I noticed a couple times that you mentioned I'm just kind of curious about this how how often are you up at Finn Island because it sounds like you're not there all the time you might not be there right now that I realize this um so how often are you actually on the ocean in a given year? Right. Um, it depends from year to year. With COVID, it's been a bit variable. I first went to Finn Island in 2019 and have been up there every year since and will be going back this year for the field season. But just because of the nature of where it is on the north coast, the storms get really, really rough in the winter and it's just not safe to be up there. So our field season typically runs from May until the end of October. And throughout that, I'll be up there for most of that time. This year, I'll be up there for most of that time with one month off in the middle. So usually four to six months out of the year, we're we're in the field. So what do you do the other time? Is it, are you like, is that when you're like analyzing all your data? So like you're up there, you're collecting snot, you're listening to sounds and you figure it all out later. Is that is that kind of how your job works at BC Wales or everyone's job, I guess? That's Yeah, that's the general process. The field season is really focused on data collection, uh, starting projects, thinking about future projects, and then the analysis comes in the winter when there's truly not much else we could be doing. Analysis and outreach is definitely focused for 
uh, the winter months. And so I'll, I'll, I'll go to the hard question. And uh, you're the you're the first, I, I guess, maybe you'd be considered under the umbrella of ecology, maybe. Um, so this is a hard question for me to ask. And I have to admit this because every everyone who knows me will uh, make fun of me if I don't ask this question. And and uh, I have to tell a story before I do. Otherwise, the the wording that I use will be very will will make everyone mad at me. <laughs> so very quick story. I've already told you this story. So you know where I'm going with this. Um, Teo, I told you this story too a couple of years ago. <laughs> I was once un uh, I was once unintentionally super mean to a wildlife uh, cons uh, conservation student. They were a master student at UBCO. Um, they were there was this um, seminar series where all the master students were giving their presentations. And one thing I usually ask at the, t at the end of every presentation is, you know, why why do you do what you do? Um, you know, if someone's making a new plastic polymer because they're an engineer, I say, well, okay, why is this new plastic polymer important? How is it going to revolutionize the world? Um, and I and and so there was this one student who came up who is researching um, bird migration patterns or something um, along those lines, um, and I didn't really realize what my what my how my question would sound when I said it. Um, but I ended up asking them, why do I care about the health of a bird? <laughs> and then the room got very, very silent and it was super awkward. Yeah. <laughs> um, the student was stunned, didn't know how to respond. Um, and then I realized, oh, that sounded really bad. <laughs> and for all the people in this room who didn't know I was asking this question to every single student, that sounds especially bad. I find like a lot of people do find it hard to um, understand the importance of what a um, ecologist does and I think they are very important um, so so with that with that context out of the way um, could you set shed some light on why the health of a whale is important specifically why the health of a whale is important to the everyday person right I mean the first thing that you have to think about with that question is what is important to the everyday person does the everyday person care about the health of an individual whale they might if they've seen that individual whale before they might be really invested in the health of that whale they might have adopted that whale symbolically the health of that individual might be truly important the health of a population might be important if you're a person that's resident to an area you've seen these whales occasionally you know they're there the thought of losing them could be frightening to you you might not want to lose that for their intrinsic value but why would the why would a whale be important to someone who is focused on the economy why would the whale be important to someone who has no connection to it there's a few things that you can think about uh, one of them is the intrinsic ecological services that they are providing just by being a whale so some of the things that they're doing is their nutrient cycling whales are often feeding at depth and then breathing and pooping at the surface. So when they do that, they're gonna be bringing a lot of nutrients from the deep to a limiting area of the ocean that might not have access to those nutrients. And similarly, the whales, especially like humpback whales or whales that are migrating, whales that are feeding in these Northern latitudes and helping the productivity of those Northern latitudes are also migrating to areas that are not very productive in the tropics. 
and they're pooping there as well. And they're releasing urea there as well. And so they're providing nutrients that are limiting to the ecosystem and supporting the health of the overall ecosystems that they're inhabiting. As well, they're huge. They're huge bodies full of carbon. And carbon sequestration is critically important right now as we're trying to fight climate change. And so supporting whale conservation is supporting the fight against climate change. The actual value of a whale, if you tried to put a number to it, was actually analyzed, a paper went into it in detail. <laughs> and from ecosystem services like those nutrient cycles, carbon sequestration, and just from general things that whales are doing, one whale, one humpback whale could be worth $2 million over the course of its lifetime. And great whales generally have been estimated to be worth a trillion dollars over the course of their lifetime, just based on the natural ecosystem services that they provide. And that when they die, they're sinking to the bottom of the ocean for the most part. And that carbon that they've accumulated in their body mass is being sequestered into the sediment and is not contributing to carbon that's going into the atmosphere and basically moving climate change along. So, so is are, are those numbers? Are they they're they're I, I'm assuming environment? Uh, would you say that uh, in they prevent environmental damage, which is part of that money, and then they deposit nutrients, and those nutrients could be used to grow something that translates into societal dollars. I'm just wondering what's like the breakdown of if if yeah, you if you can. The breakdown of the nutrient cycling is basically how much of that is going to be feeding fisheries. So how much of those nutrients is going to be put back into supporting fish stocks that we're actively fishing and using for human consumption, mm -hmm. as well as ecotourism. There's money generated by a live whale for ecotourism that would be lost if that whale was taken for another purpose. So I should invest in whale stocks. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I, w I wish I had that much value to society. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> Cash in early. <laughs> so the you do a lot of cool things um, in your job. I've seen a lot of your Instagram uh, pictures, seen a lot of Instagram videos. Um, is there any one particular moment that you had during your it doesn't necessarily have to be directly related to your job but has there been one moment that you had in the last you know several years where, where you just kind of maybe sat back and just said yeah my life is pretty awesome <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean there's there's been a few i've been very lucky to have some pretty awesome moments with whales and um yeah just with whales on the water or from land but i think one of the most incredible moments that I've experienced is again from land. So where where we're located, like I mentioned, it's it's a hugely important habitat for whales and humpback whales are using it routinely and they're they're growing in, in what they use and who does what and it's just very exciting. I'm getting very lost and my brain's going in a hundred different places. But um there was one day where I woke up and it was maybe five in the morning. And you know that I'm not a five in the morning type of person. Uh, it's very rare for me to be up before dawn for any reason. But this sound started booming over the hydrophones and it was a bubble net feeding call. And just 
waking up and going, there's whales. And that, <laughs> that call might have been on any of the hydrophones. It might have been 13 kilometers away and I wouldn't have been able to see it. But I was shot out of bed, saw that it was on the Fin Island hydrophone, and I ran outside. And by the time I'd opened the door to go out onto the deck, 11 humpback whales came up and fed, bubble nut fed right in front of the cabin. And just being able to be in that moment, hearing what's happening acoustically and then running out and being able to see the aftermath just immediately is something that I don't know how many people would ever get to experience it or how often it gets to happen for people that even are researching whales. So that's a moment that will stay with me, being able to pair in real time the acoustics that you're hearing with what that translates to visually and behaviorally and what is bubble net feeding like is it an actual net or is it like a a ball of whatever whales eat right i probably should have led with that um <laughs> so bubble net feeding is an incredibly unique feeding strategy used only by humpback whales and and also used only in particular areas of the world and we're lucky enough that on the north coast of british columbia it's an area that is rich with bubble net feeding so essentially what happens is groups of usually two to 15 whales will be in a group together and they will descend. And as we understand that they will divide themselves into two groups, one will be below a school of herring where we are, they're feeding primarily on herring and will vocalize that bubble net feeding call while simultaneously the other whales will be swimming in a spiral and blowing bubbles out of their blowholes. And so that'll actually track the school of fish and the sound that's made by the callers is actually concentrated. It's the loudest within the actual bubbles. And so that prevents the herring from thinking that they can escape. It's scary. They don't know what's on the other side of the bubbles and it's loud. So it's safest from their perspective to stay in the school within the bubble net. But of course, for the humpbacks, that means that their prey is easy pickings. So this will all be happening at the same time. And as soon as that bubble net feeding call stops, every whale in the feeding group will lunge through the center and eat the herring that's enclosed within the bubble net. Wow. That is really sophisticated. It's incredible. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and as we understand it, it's a learned behavior that's being passed on culturally yeah. and socially between whales. It's not necessarily passed on from mother to child. There's Oh, a cool. pair of humpbacks that that we know that the child bubble nets, but we've never seen the mother bubble net. So it's a really hmm. interesting culturally passed on behavior. Oh, that's interesting. This is a feeding call, a humpback whale bubble net feeding call. It's beautiful. Oh it's beautiful. Isn't that cool? 
It's mostly about yeah. 500 hertz. They're pretty consistent. They hit that pretty Oh, cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, They're great singers to be able to hit that. Like, you don't even need auto-tune. <laughs> I know. They're phenomenal. Is there any advice you would give to yourself when... Uh, your, your, your nine-year-old self when you started, you know, on your, going on to your, the waters and seeing whales for the first time? I guess my general advice for anybody trying to pursue anything that they're mildly interested in is just following your curiosity. If you're more interested in one thing than another, go after that, find out where it's going to take you. If it doesn't work out, great. You know that that maybe isn't for you. If there's something that you're really interested in or you'd like to learn more about, reach out to the people that are doing those things and see if there's some advice they could give you or maybe even if there's a role that you could be playing uh, within whatever they're doing, whether that's volunteering or just attending webinars or whatever it may be. If you're interested in something, I don't just don't ignore it. Just go after whatever you're most interested in. Oh, yeah. Uh, what, what happened in Africa? Like what you mentioned that there was a transition there. So oh sure, I, I just went. I went to Zimbabwe um, as soon as I graduated high school. I just wanted to oh, cool. to get out and and to see something different. Um, and I was volunteering on a project that was trying to rehabilitate lions and re-release them into the wild. Right. And so during that time, I wasn't as focused on some of the things the other volunteers were focused on. They wanted to just sort of being near the lions or um, near the elephants that were also at this at this um, private game reserve. But they, when you first arrive, they send you on all the different tasks so you can sort of get a feel for everything that they were doing. And I was sent on uh, a two hour research drive with their principal researcher that was basically looking into the pride that they were hoping to release into the wild. And just being with her and just being in the quiet. It was just the two of mm. us in this research vehicle and it was just quiet. And that really changed things for me. Um, being able to be with animals and know that you're not really having an impact on them, but still right. getting a lot of information from them. They were totally accustomed to the research vehicle that we were in. Uh, they'd seen it every day, basically since they were born. And so any other vehicle that would pass, they would scatter. But with our vehicle, they were just basically displaying their natural behaviors. And so that was something that I was really drawn to. And then I found that again, doing non-invasive research from land at, at Finn Island. So like you're having the experience of like being able to observe, but also know that you're not interfering. And so, so exactly. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. And it's something that is very difficult to do, especially right. if you're researching marine mammals. You're naturally in an environment that you're not accustomed to humans don't generally mm -hmm. exist in the middle of the ocean and so if you're in a vessel um not to say that we don't use vessels we do but a lot of what we're doing is from land and completely non-invasively so right. having the ability to do that as much as possible uh is really what i was looking for after going to africa i'm curious if you don't mind sharing grace is i'm gonna i'm gonna ask this question very bluntly what is the worst part of your job <laughs> um, well, I could answer that in a few ways. For me, the worst part is leaving. Leaving the field is terrible. I dread it every year. But I guess the flip side of that is the worst part is leaving your family. I'm gone for four to six months out of the year. That's a lot of time. That adds up and it, it will add up more in the future. But we love what we're doing in the field. So that's not to say that 
days in the field aren't exhausting. There is 12, 13, 14 hour days. You're hiking in bad weather. You're tying things down. There's big storms driving a boat for a long period of time. You do just generally get tired and the weather can wear you down. But I think for anybody doing any kind of science, there has to be something that pulls you back. And so for us, it might be a bit more simple to think about in that once we see whales, we're back in it, we're snapped back to reality. But for another scientist that's maybe working in a lab, there has to be something else that that clicks for them, that allows them to make that connection and keep pushing through those long, tough days And is there, knowing knowing what you know now, is there anything in particular that you would change about your life journey or your job journey? I think that, generally speaking, thinking that way can be detrimental to you. I think that if you think about what you could have done differently in the past, isn't going to change what your future will inevitably become. So if there's something that you wish you would have done or something that I wished I would have done, I think the focus is, okay, well, how do I do that in the future? How do I make that my next step? So I, I try to avoid thinking back in the past and, oh, I should have done this differently because I would just be stuck like that forever, I think. So just generally, if there's something that could have gone differently, just how do you incorporate that into what you do in the future? Was there any scenario in, 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 in your life where, you know, you, you're you're not necessarily saying that, you know, you, you wish you, you're, you, how do I phrase that? You wish yourself that you could change about yourself, um, but more in a ad, giving advice to others type way. Um, so like, let's, let's say there's right. a, a dilemma that came up and, you know, you chose one decision, you've had time to re reflect on it or what, whatever um, you, you, you do. Is there advice in that regard that you'd give to other people? I mean, maybe just reaching out to people more. If there's something that you're torn between, talk to the people that are on either side of that or to someone that's on neither side of that and just get different perspectives on where you might go. Um, I know for me, one of the choices I had to make was whether or not I stayed volunteering in a lab um, at the university that I was attending or if I put more focus on getting more experience in the field. And so I think, just generally having a sense of yourself, knowing what might be best for yourself and incorporating that into any decision you're making. For me, it was a good choice to leave the lab. For someone else, it might be a terrible choice. You might want to have that lab experience depending on what your focus is. If my focus was academia, that would have been a terrible mistake. So I guess just knowing yourself and, and fully evaluating and talking to people within either side of whatever direction you're being pulled is uh the general advice i'd give i feel like that's really good advice but it's like it's really hard to internalize when you're young absolutely like know yourself okay <laughs> talk to other people maybe they can tell me who i am i, I don't know like, experiences like a 50 year old like... soul when you're 19 and you'll be yeah. good to go <laughs> perfect <laughs> we just hyper focused on grace as a person now we're pulling back out back into bc whales and those lovely animals what 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 are the major risks risk to bc or to the whales i guess i should say in general that bc whales is trying to mitigate so there's three main ones that i'll highlight the first is ocean noise 
primarily from vessels, but also from just general human activities in the water. If you're in a vessel, you're flooding the marine soundscape. You might be interfering with the ability for whales to communicate with each other, for other organisms to communicate with each other. And so I think that is a huge risk and one that we're hopefully going to be able to quantify with the BC Coastwide Hydropo Network, as well as what we're doing with SWAG on the North Coast. The other is um, entanglement. So discarded or lost marine debris from uh, fisheries or otherwise washing up from anywhere is a huge threat to whales and something that we're also trying to quantify for how pervasive of a threat it is currently in the populations that we're studying. Um, if you become entangled, if you're a whale, it's not a nice way to go. You're generally not going to die very quickly. It's something that will become lodged on you and often you're dying from a secondary cause like starvation or infection. And so it's not a nice way to go. So we're really focused on being able to understand how often this is happening um, by analyzing scars on live individuals. The other thing is ship strike. And so anytime there's a vessel in the water, there's a risk of collision with a whale. Anytime you're on the ocean, there's a chance you could be hitting a whale. And so another organization, MERS, actually came up with the slogan, if you see a blow, go slow. And that's just general advice we'd like to give to anybody anytime they're out on the water. Be vigilant. Uh, you could be hitting a whale. And it's not going to end well for the whale or yourself. Uh, we're particularly worried about this with this new LNG shipping route that will be coming through the Great Bear Rainforest and going up to Kitimat. Um, their end projections is to be having one tanker coming through and one leaving every day. And so currently there are no tankers coming through. And so that could change everything for where we are in a relatively safe space for whales. So we're concerned about those three things at the moment. And tr and trying to maybe transition this to a, a, a more positive um, note, are are there was there any specific project that BC Whales had that you're particularly excited or proud of, and why? I'm very excited about the prospects of discovering more about bubble net feeding. I think that what we're doing with analyzing threats to whales is important, but I'm most excited about learning more about whale behavior and especially how an individual's behavior within a group and within a feeding group translates to what that means for that behavior generally. Um, we've noticed with drones that we're getting this new perspective and that there might be group formations that are happening that might be able to signal which whales would perform which roles within a feeding group. This has been analyzed in other parts of the world um, where bubble net feeding is happening, but has relied on D tags, which are basically suction cups that you place on an animal that record uh, depth, sound. They're just data loggers, basically. And so if we could figure out how to determine what the role is for each whale within a group non-invasively, I'm very excited about that. I think that discovering new things about behavior is what drives me. And being able to do that with no or little impact to a whale would be amazing. I'm most excited about that. Cool. I wanted to uh, ask ask uh, 
on that uh, non-invasive observation point, because it's, it's come up a lot. And I'm wondering, what, what is it about the, the non-invasive observation that uh, just feels so good or right? I mean, it, it's it's sort of obvious that... that, 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 that does it make you feel more connected or something to, to, to the organisms? Yeah. Or? It could make you feel more connected. I, it definitely does for me. But I think the true benefit to it is that you're observing what that true behavior would be. If you're in a vessel or you're making noise or something else is happening, you can't be sure that what you're observing hasn't been caused by what you're doing or where you are. Nice. If you're right. watching from land, you can be fairly certain that what that whale is doing has nothing to do with you waving your arms on land right. um, or being excited on land. So I think that is the true benefit to it. Nice. It's not always possible. We definitely do conduct marine surveys throughout um, farther reaches of, of their habitat on the North Coast. But the fact that we can do so much from land is incredible. It's, it's one of the only places, if not the only place that I know of in the world, where we can actually observe fin whales from land. Um, so this is one of the only places where there are a seasonally resident population of fin whales and where they're coming into near coastal waters. It's generally a very offshore oceanic species. And so that we can see them from land and even ID them individually from land is very unique to where we are and very unique to um, being able to, yeah, <laughs> it's just so unique and it's so yeah. incredible to be able to, to take that perspective on it and know that you're not having an impact on what you're observing. That's really cool. So you're more connected to them, and you you get more. It's, it's just a better experiment. Like, everyone's everyone's happy. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even think about that second part. That was an amazing <laughs> answer. I just learned yeah. something. Wow. Okay. It's, makes a lot of sense. I would have never thought about that personally. <laughs> oh well, I'm glad to uh, be of service. <laughs> Sorry, you just blew my mind. I'm ah. Uh, what do I? <laughs> what are we doing again? We're doing an interview. Um, <laughs> That philosophy is something, oh, sorry, just to bounce a bit more off of the non-invasive, mm -hmm. that philosophy is something that was really started by Paul Spong, um, Dr. Paul Spong at Orca Lab, which is one of our research partners in the Pacific Whale Society. And he actually, in his earlier days, uh, was working for the Vancouver Aquarium with captive orcas. Eventually, he realized that that was not a good scene. He was not yeah. fond of having any whale in captivity. And so he formed Orca Lab, and they are completely land-based. They have acoustic uh, hydrophone monitoring happening, as well as underwater cameras. And those are also being transmitted live from their completely land-based research platform. So that's something that really was incorporated from Orca Lab uh, into the North Coast. Our founder, Janie, actually started as an intern at Orca Lab and, and took a lot of what she learned there and is continuing to learn there to what we're doing up north. I'm going to throw you another wild card in here. If you could change one thing in the entire world instantaneously, what would you change? In the entire world, tough one. I think I would ask for it to be snowing right now. You can come to Saskatchewan. It's snowing right now. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposed to be snowing here today and it's raining. So I think if I could change one thing in the world right now, I would ask for it to be snowing. Where you are is that yeah yeah okay <laughs> or for world peace or you know no climate change issues but also snow i would say 
<laughs> I, I would i how could you combine those in, in a in a weird way i would like there to be world peace on a snow day <laughs> <laughs> if everybody had a snow day we'd have world peace <laughs> and so grace is there any initiatives or anything along those lines that you would like to plug about bc wales um or even you know your own side projects if you want um where can we find you what initiatives can we learn more about? If we want to learn more, what can we do? Uh, the first thing I would say is that if you want to learn more about BC Wales or the specific projects we're working on, you can find us on our website at bcwales.org. You can also keep up with us on social media at BC Wales on Facebook and Instagram. That's where we're going to be most active and announcing anything new that we're up to or publications that are coming out will be also mentioned on there. So if you're interested in seeing what we're doing, following along with us in the future, that's where you can find us. If after listening to this, you want to follow me personally, uh, you can find me on Instagram at E-G-B-A-E-R. Grace has amazing wildlife photography. I, I'm always like, I want your job <laughs> every single time you post something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess um, I can just say I'm really thankful to uh, uh, have learned so much about uh, what like I came in with just like, okay, they're big and they live in the water. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? <laughs> but well, that uh, is true. <laughs> it's, it's true, but that's just two things. And I feel like I've learned much more than two things today. So so that, thank you so much for with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It, uh, it was fun. And Grace, you have to blow our mind one more time. I've We're going to give you the last question. Whatever you, whatever is the last word that comes out of your mouth is the end of this podcast. So just so you know, there's no goodbyes, no outros, no nothing after this. But I've ended all my interviews for the last decade with the exact same question. And Grace, I cannot break this tradition. There is absolutely no bone, bone in my body that will allow me to not do this. So here's the question. We were taught in grade school that we should all learn to strive one thing every single day. You've already taught us probably about three dozen things. I'll listen to this podcast back and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even register that you said that because I was still focused on the other 19 things you taught me. <laughs> so, Grace, I'm asking you one more time to blow our minds. What is your favorite fun fact or one final thing we could all learn from you? It could be about whales. could be a life hack. could be absolutely anything you want. It could be your favorite animal. The floor is yours and the last words of this podcast are yours. Go for it. So Noah placed Noah, the um, an organization in the United States that focuses on marine and atmospheric science. They placed a hydrophone at the deepest point in the ocean, about seven miles below the surface. And from that hydrophone, it was still coming in crystal clear any time a vessel passed over top of it. Any time a vessel passed over top of the deepest point in the ocean, you could hear it at the bottom. So think about what you might be doing anytime you run a vessel out in the ocean.